Hello, everybody. My name is Reese Karlinski, and this is Young History, episode 89 on Nicaragua. Capital is Managua. The name of this country may have come from the Nicaro people, who were one of the original inhabitants of this land, and the name of the country also means united here with water, or here united with water. The country is known as the land of poets because Ruben Dario, who was a Nicaraguan poet, was the father of Spanish-American modernism movement, which is one of the most important arts kind of music movements in the history of Central America and South America ever. And the country doesn't use street names or postal codes, so most of the mail is actually addressed by stating landmarks and distance from other things. This is also used in Costa Rica. So if you're living super close to the capital of the country, you're in Managua, and let's say you're next to the actual capital building, it would probably say this many minutes (laughs) south of the capital next to this landmark is what your address would be, and then you have to give more specifics. So it's very weird. There's not actual street names or postal codes like we use in the U.S., so it's very confusing to send mail over to Nicaragua. And then of all the Earth's biodiversity, 7% of it is actually within the border of Nicaragua alone. And then I'm going to segue that into a little culture talk. Nicaragua is very, very proud people, full of very proud people, to the brim, actually. And they take their culture very seriously, and there is a lot of differences between the different parts of Nicaragua. So on the West Coast, the Pacific side, you get the side that was very influenced by Spain and the influence from the creation of Mestizos. And then you go to the Far East, and you see where the Mosquito people were living, which is where the British occupied for a long time. So the culture there kind of takes on more of a Caribbean style. You can see that in their food and their dance and in their clothing. And then the center of it kind of mirrors more just general Central America. So it's a very interesting culture here. They're very proud of it. And we're going to see why being a proud Nicaraguan is important to them as we go through the history. And with that, I do want to get right into it. So thank you all so much for being here as per usual. And I just want to always stress that people clicking on these episodes means a lot. It doesn't matter how few or how many listen or how many times you listen. Just coming by for this one, I appreciate it a lot. I really, really do. So I really hope you are well and I hope you enjoy. And one more time, my name is Reese Garlinski. This is Young History, and this is Nicaragua. Let's do this thing. Our origins begin around 2,000 years ago with the Nicaro people, who are believed to be the first inhabitants who ever came into this land. They were hunter-gatherers that lived as this style for a very long time, and then they became agricultural farmers and pastoralists for a short period. Nicaragua may be named after them before anyone else. Over the next few centuries, the Rama and the Mayagma people would actually move into the coast of the western side of the country over the next few thousand years and would eventually begin to influence both the Nicaro people and actually end up changing their culture as well. Spain arrived in 1524. About 25 years after Columbus originally had spotted the area, they established the cities of Leon and Granada. This created an issue for the natives as they were captured as forced labor, had to face diseases from Europe, and also had to face the general abuses and things that came from the Europeans looking at these people as a kind of foreign exotic item rather than as actual people. Under the leadership of Francisco Hernandez de Cordoba, they extracted all the gold they could from Nicaragua and then widely abandoned its development for more favorable countries, ones that had a lot more gold, such as Brazil and other ones of that sort. In 1610, Mamotombo, which was a giant mountain in the country, erupted and forced the inhabitants of Leon to migrate west. And once it got moved here, many beautification projects were undertaken, and then Granada and Leon began to battle for hegemony over the region as they were now both closer to each other and in the west coast. 
because they had very different ideologies as Leon was much more liberal and Granada was much more conservative. The Mosquito people were the indigenous people of the east coast of Nicaragua, and they actually formed an alliance with the British Empire in the late 1600s, and this allowed the Mosquito Coast, as it was named for its inhabitants, to be settled by the British from 1740 to 1786, where it was a British dependency. This coast, of course, was not developed at all by the other Nicaraguans or the Spanish, since it was a British territory. And at the end of the 1700s, steps towards autonomy were taken because Leon was a more powerful city in politics, and the inhabitants actually favored a government that would resemble the American Revolution rather than the monarchy, which is what the Granada conservatives favored. And on September 15, 1821, it actually declared autonomy under the Kingdom of Guatemala. It was entirely peacefully achieved because Nicaragua didn't have to actually do any of the fighting. It was Guatemala and them that pushed and united with other powers to fight off Spain. And then Nicaragua was actually briefly part of the Mexican Empire in 1822. The next step was to actually move towards uniting all of Central America, but this fell through by the late 1830s as Nicaragua was part of the Central American Federation for a time, but it did fall apart. True independence came on November 5th, 1838, when Nicaragua left the Union under Guatemala. Leon and Granada both took different views on how to handle the status of their new country. Not long after, the capital was actually moved to Managua between the two cities to ease the tensions between Leon and Granada. In this post-independence period, there was a lot of tension between the conservatives and liberals still, and liberals enjoyed the help of a small American force led by William Walker to stand against the conservatives in Nicaragua. This was done by negotiations between members of the U.S. government slash military and the liberals of Nicaragua. Walker actually ended up taking power in the government himself and named himself president of Nicaragua. And to make things even worse, the United States actually recognized him as the true president of Nicaragua and his government as the legitimate one. In 1860, a combined Central American force came to remove Walker from power. This coalition was successful and he was executed on September 12th of 1860. Coffee cultivation was heavily invested in throughout the 1870s. The noble class began to remove natives and peasants from their land to use it for crop cultivation, and this changed the lives of many in the peasantry, and this caused a huge anger within them, which culminated in the Matagalapa Rebellion of 1881. The rebellion saw the peasant class and farmers unite to protest and riot against the government. This government handled this very aggressively and killed thousands that were a part of the uprising. Not long after this, we would see the rise of Jose Santos Zelaza. He was a president during his his time in power, and he saw the East Coast added to Greater Nicaragua. In 1894, he defended against the advances of the U.S. He also wanted there to be a canal in Nicaragua to connect to the Pacific. But by the later part of his rule, the U.S. was already working on that project in Panama as it was the thinnest landmass to cut through and was, of course, the cheapest. And the U.S. didn't want any competition. So the U.S. actually began to back the political conservative opponent of Zelana. Eventually, Zelaya did resign in 1909, and the following year, power went to the conservative minority. The conservatives ended up running the country in a terrible way, and this led to a coalition of liberal forces challenging the government in a new insurrection. The U.S. sent the actual Marines of the United States military to stop this, and this is when the U.S. occupation of Nicaragua did begin. It started in 1912 and lasted until 1933. During this time, U.S. backed the government they supported and any policies they wanted, no matter how it affected the Nicaraguan people. And the U.S. also gave away some Nicaraguan islands to Colombia to ease the tensions between Colombia and the U.S. because the U.S. earlier in this century had ripped Panama away from Colombia's control in order to build a canal. And then speaking of canals, the U.S. also bullied Nicaraguan officials into signing a treaty that would give the U.S. some hegemony over Nicaragua and 
take away power from the Nicaraguan government in order to quote unquote build a canal in Nicaragua. But this was never intentionally going to be done as the U.S. just wanted this to be signed so that there was legal writing to say that Nicaragua couldn't challenge the building of the Panama Canal because they were getting their own canal, quote unquote. In 1927, a resistance broke out, and it was started by Augusto Sandino, and this challenged United States rule within the land, and U.S. troops were pushed out by this resistance by the end of 1932. Augusto was famous for the way that he fought and established different resistance groups, one of them being the Sandinistas that were named in his honor after the resistance ended. Next, we would see the introduction of Anastasio Somaso Garcia, who consolidated the power of the National Guard to actually help him take power as he was one of the leading generals. And he actually ordered the assassination of Augusto Sandino in 1934. He then staged a coup in 1936 to officially take power for himself. And this would begin the dynasty of the Somoza family. They ruled the country in three different parts from 1936 to 1979. The Somoza family was actually able to rule from this point until 1979 because the National Guard was this military that kind of acted as the backbone military of Nicaragua and it was actually established by the U.S. during their occupation. So the U.S. took a lot of the police and small volunteer military members and kind of trained them and forced them into this paramilitary group that would become the National Guard. So once the U.S. was kicked out, it allowed whoever was in control of the National Guard to kind of have military control. And this is what Anastasio Somoso Garcia did. He consolidated the power there and was able to overthrow the government he wanted because now there was no one protecting the president. And the Somoso family always had support of this corrupt National Guard as they were always the ones inheriting power and passing it to each other. And they always had the U.S. in their back pocket because the U.S. never supported the other side, the more liberal members of the Nicaraguan government. And of course, since they were the ones who established the National Guard, they were very happy to back that as well. Anastasio was president or advisor to the president from 1936 to 1956 when he was assassinated. Then Luis Somoza de Valle, who was the son of Anastasio, held power from 1956 to 1967. During his rule, Nicaragua supported the U.S. intervention in Cuba and the occupation of the Dominican Republic. The U.S. gave millions to the Somoza family to use for quote-unquote economic advancement, even though there was a bunch of evidence that the individual Somozas were pocketing this money for themselves. Then the brother of Luis was actually elected to the presidency in 1967, and he ruled until 1979. During his rule, the Nicaraguan earthquake of 1972 crushed the capital and crushed the economy as things were starting to stabilize during the rule of this new Samosa brother. But once this natural disaster hit, it caused a lot of chaos and it actually caused the resistance groups to reform in the country very hard and challenge the government with a stronger offense. And this is when the Sandinistas, who were the resistance group that fought to get the corrupt Samosas out of power, really started to get support. And in 1979, they took over the capital of Managua and established a new government. And they were, of course, named for Augusto Sandino, who was the leader of the first major resistance in this country. The Sandinista government funded and backed other resistance movements in other parts of Central America. However, when the Reagan administration came into power, it actually began a policy that was very anti-communist in South America, and these Sandinistas did take a socialist view because of the hardcore conservatives that ruled for so long in their society. They saw that the system seemed corrupt, and they wanted the exact opposite to be enacted. So they wanted a socialist, which appears communist society, and the Reagan administration in the 80s was entirely based on fighting stuff. It was the Red Scare. It was all that in the U.S. So directly the Reagan administration starts to back the Contras, which are the 
conservative anti-Sandinista group in Nicaragua. The Contras end up killing thousands of Nicaraguans, including soldiers, politicians, and civilians, but the Contras couldn't fully defeat the Sandinistas in military or in the elections. And this led to Daniel Ortega being placed in power by the Sandinistas. He pushed for a bigger socialist revolution, and this was really hard to enact in Nicaragua, as the instability of the country was high and the economy was struggling because of the U.S. sanctions. This led to a peace negotiation among Central American countries, led by the regime under George H.W. Bush. The 1990 election was internationally supervised and saw Violetto Berrios Chamorro win the election soundly as head of a 14-party coalition. Her cabinet helped greatly reduce inflation, reduce the strength of the military, added democratic power, and reorganized the police to have it better funded and better used. Relations with the U.S. were not great in the 90s because of the new legislation in power, as, of course, she was a much more liberal and progressive Nicaraguan politician, and just historically, the U.S. never supported them. So instead of doing what the U.S. should do in so many scenarios is say that their old stance was wrong and take a new one, they just double down on what they believe and continue to have a bad relationship with this president, Violeta Chamora, even though it was clear that she was the better option between herself and Ortega. Then in the 1996 elections, they were by far the most free and fair elections since the 1930s, and they were not perfect, but the legitimacy election was protected by the Chamorro government, and power shifted to a new party peacefully. Armando Aliman was the winner of this 96 election, and he faced many economic struggles and accusations of corruption, as well as the backlash of Hurricane Mitch, which ravaged the country on the East Coast. He enlisted many policies that helped him be protected from any persecution during or after his presidency, and because of this, a lot of political cartoons and sayings about him being greedy and all this came out because even though he seemed to kind of bury himself in admitting the guilt of being corrupt, he tried to still protect himself with the law because he was the president and could enact pretty much whatever he wanted. His successor and vice president, Enrique Bolanos, persecuted him after his presidency and had him placed on house arrest. But Aliman was still able to have influence on some parts of the government, even when he was out of office, as he backed certain politicians, and the fervorous crowds that did support him would still go behind whatever politician he backed. Our next major thing would be the 2006 elections, which faced a lot of struggle because every party involved was trying to use some level of corruption and underhanded tactics to get an advantage in the next election, and this is why Daniel Ortega was able to win back his spot as president. He then aligned his regime with the Venezuelan government under Hugo Chavez and started to get access to oil for Nicaragua. The courts of the nation decided that the rules of no re-election did not apply to Ortega, and they definitely were not convinced in any way to make this decision at all by Ortega. There's no way that this was not a free choice by them to make. He then won re-election in 2011, and he held power in the country with an iron fist by manipulating many areas of the government. He won again in 2016 when he ran his wife alongside him as his running mate, thus beginning his third term as president, and this is when he saw the 2018 protest. Student protests broke out in different areas of Nicaragua to challenge the new policy of Ortega because this policy was going to reduce Social Security and push back the retirement age, which is a huge protest going on as we speak in Paris and other parts of France, as the regime under Macron has actually upped the retirement age and has really set a fire under the butts of the French. The protests were also made to challenge the wildfires that were breaking out as they were hitting different natural reserves in Nicaragua. And as we said in the beginning, Nicaragua is home to 7% of the world's biodiversity. So the beauty and natural scenic stuff of 
Nicaragua is very important to its people. Its protection is very not even ben, not only beneficial to them financially, but also just a big part of their culture. So seeing that the government was doing nothing to stop these fires, people protested as well. And the protests, which challenged these two issues, were handled really violently by the armed paramilitary force under Ortega. And the only reason we know about this in international views is because social media footage actually sent the abuses out to many news stations and posted them so that they could be viewed. This sparked a great outrage inside the country and outside of it, and more protests started to break out in major cities like Managua. And this is when live ammunition rounds were actually used on students that were protesting, and at least 15 people died. Calls for Ortega to step down were huge, but were met only with a conference between him and his political opponents. During this conference, he talked here and there about changes that would come, but it was all smoke and mirrors as he ends up doubling down on his power and, as we speak, is trying to lock down different legalities that would ban an opposition party from existing in any form. So it seems that Daniel Ortega, who has stripped this country of all of its political rights, it's stripping civil rights from people, it's making the country worse in every way, it's getting more sanctions on it, and it's negotiating with different people that most of the world thinks it shouldn't be negotiating with. It's clear that all these come from Ortega's rule, and it doesn't seem like this is going to end until Ortega does, and Ortega is very likely to rule until he dies. He is currently 77 years old, so hopefully he croaks soon, but this mirrors very heavily what we see in Cuba back when Fidel was in power, and it's one of those things where people hope he dies because hopefully that'll mean a change, but there's no doubting Ortega is smart, and there's no doubting that Fidel was smart, and they do tend to have a whole system under them and just push into power whoever they want next. So the hope is that Ortega hopefully passes on here soon and new things could come, but right now Nicaragua has such low political freedom, it's terrible. And that leads me to wanting to talk about the Nicaraguan Canal. So this has been a, an idea discussed for a long time, but very little progress has been made, and we're going to talk about why. So before the Panama Canal, there were many talks to make a canal through Nicaragua because of the already existing Nicaragua Lake. Talks with the U.S. fell through once Panama was chosen because the Panama Canal would have been cheaper, it's a thinner strip of land, and the U.S. was more easily able to exact their power in Panama. And then the U.S. strung Nicaragua along for a long time to keep them thinking that there would be a canal, and it also, it's kind of like... If someone is in those relationships, situationships, things where they're not fully committing, but they're not fully giving the person what they want, and they kind of stay with them, but don't want them to be with anyone else. It's like that meme where, from The Simpsons, when Lisa and Milhouse have that meme where Milhouse goes, you don't want me to be with you, you don't want me to be with anyone else, how miserable do you want me to be? It's kind of what the U.S. did to Nicaragua here, as you maybe if the timing was right and the U.S. was not involved, Nicaragua could have found someone to fund a canal back then for them, but the U.S. kind of strung them along and was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah we're going to build a canal, we're going to build a canal. See, like, it's in paper, we're going to build a canal. Not at all a chance of the U.S. ever doing that. But things start to shift. In 2013, the Nicaraguan government came to an agreement with the HKND Chinese Construction Company to build a canal over a 50-year period. The idea of this was daunting, but it was quickly proven that this project would probably never happen. Now, it was alluring because for a long time there, the Panama Canal was its same width as it had always been since 1908, and as technology has advanced, ships have gotten massive, so only moderate-sized ships could fit through the Panama Canal. The massive freighters that would kind of most crucially need to use the Panama Canal, could not use it because of the size. And the Panama Canal was slow, many things like that. But recently, the Panama Canal took some time to actually expand the size of it. So now, almost every ship in the world, except for the absolutely most massive, massive ships in the world, can fit through the Panama Canal. 
And then this doubled back to another reason why Nicaragua would probably never get a canal, but there's other reasons that this HKND promise fell through. So it would cost approximately $40 billion to construct. It would lead to the destruction of rainforests. It could potentially bring danger to Lake Nicaragua as you're bringing the risk of an oil tanker spilling there. And Lake Nicaragua provides most of the fresh water for all Central America. So literally that would be catastrophic to millions of people's health. And on top of that, the main billionaire behind the HKND company lost 80% of his wealth in the 2015 Chinese stock market crash. So the Panama Canal also expanded. So it seems the Nicaraguan Canal has been much more of a hope than a reality and will probably remain that way forever as the idea of just improving the Panama Canal seems to be cheaper, more efficient, and on an international view just seems more reasonable than actually starting a Nicaragua Canal. So doubtful that this will ever happen. And that gets us to the present day where the country does have a medium level of human development, but on the Freedom House scale, which is a website that tracks all the political freedom and civil liberties of every country in the world on a scale of zero to 100, it has a bunch of measures and tests for each one. Um, like it measures, was this president slash political leader elected in a fair election? Is it easy for other parties to get into power? Stuff like that. And this country has like a two out of 40 score. It's terrible. Daniel Ortega allows almost nothing on paper the existence of political power outside of ortega technically still exists but they have no chance of winning the election and as time goes on it seems that ortega is trying to put a tighter and tighter grip on his control of the presidency so with that this country ranks extremely low on that scale and will very much stay that way until any change comes and with that being said that's kind of the status of nicaragua today the economy is in a very up down state where the elite are safe, as it is with most countries. The elite are doing fine. The sanctions don't affect them. Ortega has a good grip on the country, and the people who support him that are in his inner circle, they're doing fine. But when it comes to the general middle and lower classes in Nicaragua, they're struggling hard because there's no social safety nets. There's nothing helping them. The government won't give out loans. There's only power, and the people Ortega wants to have power. So the country is definitely in a tough place. But it still gets a decent amount of tourists because the resorts are beautiful and under Ortega's regime, crime has been lowered, but that isn't to excuse what's going on here at all as this country is most definitely still in a struggle that is going to take it a long time to figure out. And the biggest hope that the outside world seems to see is if Ortega falls out of power somehow, which is not going to happen for a long time. And with that, that gets us to the end where I always like to do a takeaway or a mindset. And with Nicaragua, that is going to be bet on yourself. And I've said something similar to that before in one of these episodes, but I feel that's very appropriate with Nicaragua because of the history it's had since Nicaragua has always had to figure something out for itself. It's had very hard challenges being under the control of Spain and then Guatemala and then Mexico. And then it was part of the Federation of Central America, all those different things. Nicaragua, despite its internal struggles, which is what we all have, internal struggles, it's still doubled down on its own belief and still believe that it knew what was best for itself rather than anyone else. So it always chose independence and has always chosen to break away from anyone, be it U.S. occupation, be it Spain, be it whatever. The Nicaraguans have always been proud of who they are, had faith in themselves, and pushed out anyone that has not supported them. And right now they're in that struggle with Daniel Ortega. They just don't seem to have the literal legal right or ability to unite against him because he has the military in a vice lock and the government in a vice lock so it's very hard to do and no one is going to step in internationally to help them but that does not stop the nicaraguans from trying and still protesting and wanting to bet on themselves to get through this and i say that with you where literally all that matters is having faith in yourself 
And that isn't to take away from anyone's faith religiously, if you have a faith in God or anything. But end of the day, I believe that if you are someone who has faith in a deity, then you should have faith in yourself because that deity should have faith in you. And feeding into that cycle is like a perfect feedback loop. So I say that because end of the day, every big thing that happens in your life is going to be your fault somehow. Sometimes you could try the best with something and it'll fall through. Absolutely. Some things are out of your control. 100%. There are systemic things that are hard. There's things that are not systemic and are literally just another person's actions affecting you. But outside of those things, which I don't believe make up that big of a percentage of everyone's daily life, it's on you. It's on you to get your work done. It's on you to forge the path you want. It's on you to find the right partner. It's on you to put yourself in good positions. It's on you. So betting on yourself and investing in yourself and believing truly that everything you do for yourself is the best possible thing is going to lead to the best possible outcome. And if you just continue to give yourself reasons and prove to yourself that betting on yourself is the right answer, you're going to see great growth in that because you shouldn't have confidence without proof. And, and that's exactly why you need to invest in yourself is your confidence will come from who you become and who you start to see yourself align yourself with and the actions you take. Because like Nicaragua, you're going to 100% have to face challenges that come up in your life. And if you bet on yourself and believe that you, as for me, it's Reese, for my brother, it's Grant, whoever it is in this position, if you're betting on yourself and you're investing in the person and their decisions being you, the outcome is fully on you. And that takes away any blame from anyone else, but it also takes away any glory from anyone else. And if you are the one blaming yourself for everything and taking responsibility, that means you also get to take responsibility for every great thing that happens, for your relationship, for your success, for your financials, for all of that. And taking responsibility and betting on yourself is just having faith that things are going to figure themselves out because of who you are. And I think that's a great place to be because then it's not a woe is me. You're not blaming things on the world. You're not complaining. You're just saying, okay, Reese needs to do this. I have to. And no matter what happens, it's on me because that is the truth. Whatever happens, it's on you. It's on you. And it's on me for my life. So with that, I say that is the lesson. I say that is what I pulled from Nicaragua. And on top of that, I'm going to say goodbye as Nicaragua was a very fun one. It's very nice to be able to pull away from certain areas of the world. Like the order we do this is based on population. So depend a lot of areas that are similar have similar populations. So I'll get trapped in central Europe or trapped in the Balkans for a long time. And I was in the Nordics for a while there and it was fun, but hearing the same history and through different lenses could definitely be frustrating. So it's nice to bounce back to the Western hemisphere, learn about Nicaragua and start to bounce around with countries here. So that's been very fun. I love doing this one and I'm very excited to see what happens with this country. Definitely stay educated about what protests are going on, what things are upsetting the Nicaraguan people and what Ortega is doing as we speak. So very glad I can be part of you learning that and part of myself learning it too. So with that being said, I'm going to say goodbye and say thank you all so much for being here. Truly means the world. I said it at the beginning, but I'll say it again because it's always true. Just listening to one of these means the world to me. And either way, I think it's all of us taking steps toward being a little more educated on things that do matter. Because even if it's outside of our borders, it doesn't mean it isn't affecting people just like you and me. So thank you all for listening and thank you all for getting whatever you got out of this. And I hope you did get something. So... My name is Reese Garlinski, this is Young History, and that was Nicaragua. You guys have a great one.